High Point Church, come on, let's give it up for Jesus one more time in this place today. Amen. Well, thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. You can go ahead and have a seat today. Again, good morning, LifePoint Church. My name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the student pastors at the Lewis Center campus, and I am so honored to have the opportunity to be with you today. If you are a teenager in the room this morning, what up? Nice to meet you. Although I don't get the chance to hang out with you here on Sunday nights, I know that Brayden would love to have you come hang out on a Sunday night to see what we do for students. In fact, if you are a 6th through 12th grade student in the room this morning, we have a really cool event, and I'm just going to shamelessly plug it for the next 60 seconds, all right? So in two Sundays on September 11th, you're going to get here to the Delaware campus at 5 p.m. It's a little earlier than normal. We're going to have pizza for you and games for you, and then we're going to bust you over to our Lewis Center campus. We'll have inflatables. We'll have more games. We have an incredible youth service that happening that night. We have students joining us from all five of our LifePoint campuses, and we're ending the night with something ridiculous like 400 bags of cotton candy or something. So incredible. And if you're sitting in here and you've ever wondered, what do we actually do for students? That's a great opportunity. We'd love for you to come and hang out right here, September 11th, 5 p.m. It's going to be awesome. And again, for everyone else in the room today, I am so honored to have the chance to be here. And I want you to know that I think the world of your pastor. I love your pastor. Yeah, we can clap for that. In the time that I've known Kale, the greatest lesson that I've learned from him is about what it means to be truly humble. Mainly because if I am ever feeling too confident, Kale will challenge me to a game of ping pong and display no mercy as he absolutely destroys me. Your pastor might be the greatest ping pong player I have ever met, and I'm not kidding. He's, the, he's, so, he's four and a half feet behind the table with a headband on, making weird like grunting noises. As he's, I'm kidding about the grunting noises in the headband, but he is really, he's just so cool, you know? We can agree on that this morning. And on a serious note, such a real and genuine example of a Jesus follower. In our time together this morning, I get to launch us into a new series called Asking for a Friend. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you today, take it out, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what I know. We all have questions. Some of our questions we ask, and other times we have questions I think that we wish someone else would probably ask for us, right? Most of our questions tend to surround how we relate to one another, which is primarily why the Bible offers us 59 one another statements about how we relate to one another. Think about it. Our family of origin, our personal experiences, our culture, all of these things affect our opinions. The things that we think are right, the things that we feel all right. Now, we know that we will never all agree on everything. Of course not. However, we must begin with the scriptures, God's word, when it comes to answering life's most difficult questions. That search has brought us in this series to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, where we're going to gain the relational insight to help us believe correctly but also important to treat each other carefully. These are the things that everyone's wondering, but nobody wants to ask. We genuinely believe that God's word offers answers to life's most difficult questions. 
Which brings us to the question we're going to be answering as part of our series today, which is this. If Christians are supposed to be so different from the world, then why are Christians always fighting with each other? Have you ever wondered that before? We know that in life, conflict and disagreements are bound to happen, right? They are an inescapable part of life. Think about it. Babies fight, kids fight, teenagers fight, adults fight, spouses fight. We even, we even fight internally with ourselves sometimes, right? But unhealthy conflicts and unhealthy disagreements are part of what it means to live in a sinful world. And as we're gonna see today, the Corinthian church was full of these types of unhealthy conflicts and disagreements. If you've never read anything in 1 Corinthians before, you came to the right place this morning because I'm gonna give you some backstory as we head into this series. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. Paul was a missionary, which means that he would travel around to all of these different cities, and when he got there, he would begin by telling people about Jesus. He would talk about the creator God of the universe and how we turn our back on God and we call that sin, and God sent his son Jesus, and through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God, and God wants to invite us into a relationship with him. Paul would tell what we would call the gospel. He would tell people about the good news of Jesus, and he would invite people into relationship with God. And then as they gave their lives to Jesus, he would bring them into a faith community. He would start a church, much like what we have today. And once that church had reached a sustainable point, Paul would then leave and continue on in his journey. So over in Acts chapter 18, we can see that that's exactly the story that plays out with Corinth. Paul shows up. He begins to preach to people about Jesus. He brings them together and he plants a church. And then eventually that church reaches a sustainable place and he leaves and continues on in his journey. But after a while, Paul began to get reports that this once thriving faith community there in Corinth, this once vibrant, transformational faith community in Corinth was now crumbling. They were falling apart. And although they couldn't see it, they were blind to it, their situation was full of irony. See, they believed, the Corinthians believed that they had become the wisest Christians of them all. Some of them even believed that their wisdom had surpassed the wisdom of Paul. He's the guy who led them to Jesus, right? Wisdom has even passed him now. Yet all the while, they're struggling with these seemingly simple issues. Now, I'm a student pastor. means I work with teenagers, and they know that I love them, so I can say this. But it seems to me like the Corinthian church had entered its teenage phase, right? Where one day... The Corinthians woke up overnight, something happened, and all of a sudden they knew everything. And Paul, their spiritual dad, in a way, in the same miraculous night, supernatural, he all of a sudden knew nothing. Right? Parents in the room, the teenage phase, you know what I'm saying? We feel me on that? Now, you weren't supposed to, there's some people in this room looking at your teenagers, you were not supposed to do that. We're trying to resolve conflict this morning, not create it, all right? So, there we go. So, that's what Paul's doing. That's the situation they find themselves in. And so Paul, in this letter, is he's going to list off each of the things that they're struggling with. That's the purpose of this letter. And he's trying to lead them back to Jesus through that struggle. And his underlying theme is, man, he's really trying to help them see that their pride in their own wisdom is what's leading them to failure. As you and I read this today, here's what we're going to see. I want to tell you where we're going before we even get there. Here's where we're going. As you and I read this, we're going to see that those inescapable parts of life conflict and disagreement, for Christians, those are actually an opportunity. 
So I want to start by reading this passage for you. We're going to read chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, and then I'll jump back into verse 1, and we'll talk about what it means and how it applies to our lives. All right, so here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here, in the beginning of chapter six, just as I said, Paul is turning his attention to another one of their internal issues as he writes, he saw it in verse one, when one of you has a grievance with another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, in these next eight verses, Paul is speaking with an incredible amount of passion. In these next eight verses, he's got the caps lock on, it's bolded, it's underlined, the whole deal. The general attitude of what he's saying is this, how dare you, how dare you? If I could give you the Andrew translation of that first verse, you might say it something like this. When one of you in the Corinthian church has an issue with another one of you in the Corinthian church, how dare you take that to the courts, which are led by non-Christians, rather than letting that be handled by other Christians inside of the church? That's the root of Paul's concern. Now, there are a couple of things that are really important to know as we dive into this. The first one is this. If we could all read this in the original writing that Paul wrote it in, we would see that Paul makes it clear that he's talking specifically about civil cases, what he would define as matters pertaining to daily life rather than criminal cases. So Paul is not suggesting that we try to handle criminal cases like murder or sexual abuse or DUIs inside of the church. He's talking about civil cases like unpaid loans, business deals gone bad, right? Property disputes, things of that nature. It's also helpful to know that Paul is specifically talking here about issues that we have of this nature as they relate to other Christians, right? He's talking specifically about Christian versus Christian conflict. And it's not that Paul was against all courts because Paul spoke highly of the courts in other places in his writing. In fact, this court there in Corinth had ruled in Paul's favor before, but that was the exception to the rule. Paul understood how these ancient courts tended to work. This court there in Corinth was known for being highly corrupt. Now, here's what that would actually look like. What do you mean when we say a court is highly corrupt? Well, typically, it meant that in these cases, a person of only people of high status could initiate these cases, these kinds of civil cases. So we all know where this is going, right? What happens? Well, this means that typically the person of high status is just using the court as a way to take advantage of a person of lower status. We also know that they tended to be, these kinds of civil cases tended to be far more about the spectacle than they were about justice. In a way, the more I study this, this feels a lot like their version of ancient reality television. All right, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Think like Judge Judy or the People's Court. This is like more for show than it is about the actual case. 
I have a map of the, the city of Corinth that I'll show you that just kind of helps us get an idea of how this would work. So if you wanted to take someone to court in Corinth, you would have to go to the middle of the town square. In the middle of the town square, what's happening? People are shopping, business deals are being done, they're visiting with each other. This is like a, a mall food court or something, right? And then in the middle of that town square, there would be a raised platform called a bima. We have another picture I'll show you of an ancient Corinthian bima. This is an actual bima from Corinth. And, and what do we know about this? Well, we know that what would happen is you'd have to, if you want to try something to court, you would have to go to the bima and the judge would sit up on the bima as he heard your case. But what do we know about people? <laughs> Not just the judge would hear your case. What do we know about people watching? Really, anyone who wanted to hear your case could hear your case. That's kind of how this works, right? You're in the middle of the town square. There's lots of people. There's a judge, and that sets up scenarios for everyone to go, wait, what did he just say? Oh, my. Did you hear what they're talking about? Right? This is like a public affair. And it seems like they really liked this setup. In fact, in these civil cases, ancient records show that there would be anywhere from 40 to 100 people in the jury. Can you imagine 100 people deciding your HOA dispute? You know what I mean? Like, ah, like you could not get 100 people. You would have to pay 100 people to do that, right? A significant amount. Nobody wants to do that, but they seem to like it. I don't know. You could even hire an advocate to represent your case. But their advocates were not like the, the professional lawyers of our day. Their advocates were more like the paid actors of their day. Again, because in these civil cases, it was, there wasn't really a burden of proof. It was a lot more about saying whatever you needed to say to get the judge and the jury and the crowd on your side. It's crazy. You could say whatever you want. This was a total character assassination. One person, typically the person of lower status, was going to leave with their life ruined and their reputation destroyed. So Paul understands this, and he, he hears reports that these people in Corinth are taking each other to court, and immediately he knows that this is the worst possible place for two Christians to be arguing with one another. And it's such a bad look for Christianity, right? But not only does it give Christians a bad name, it's also odd to him that they're letting the judge, this non-Christian judge, decide issues that specifically have to do with how believers relate to one another. And that's what Paul is going to kind of continue to unpack in this as we get to verse 2 and verse 3. Here's what he says. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So to help the Corinthians and now us understand why handling conflict this way was a bad idea, Paul is going to zoom out to help us see the bigger picture. In these two verses, verse two and verse three, Paul is using our destiny to inform our present. And to do that, he's relying on some common teaching throughout the scriptures about what the roles of Christians will be in eternity. Maybe you wonder, what does eternity actually look like for us? That's kind of what he's relying on. There are a bunch of examples of this throughout scripture. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, hey, one day you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Over in Daniel chapter 7, which is maybe the closest parallel to what Paul is saying here, that we have in all of Scripture, we're told that when Christ returns, the responsibility for judgment and for ruling will be given over to the saints. So there's two. We've got judgment in the first one and judgment in the second one. And even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're told that eventually one day we will rule and reign with Christ. And the word for rule there could be translated either way. It could be rule or it could be judgment. And so what we know, we don't really know exactly what this looks like. We just know that in eternity, we will have some sort of responsibility to rule or to judge whatever that looks like. But Paul is not here in verse two and three trying to unpack eternity for us. That is not the goal. We should not read this and try to figure out the end times. That's, that's not it. To put it simply, here's what Paul is saying in these two verses. If one day you and I, the Corinthians, are going to have this great glory and this great responsibility, this great opportunity to rule and reign with Christ on a cosmic scale that we can't even begin to fathom, then we are more than capable now of walking in that authority to decide these civil cases between believers. Here's the point that I believe that Paul is trying to make. As Christians... Our identity should determine our activity. Our identity should determine our activity. Let's talk about identity for a minute. Are you struggling today? Think about this with me. 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe was hanging on a cross, being totally shamed and humiliated and tortured. And while the onlookers are wondering why he's so committed to this cause that he's willing to die for it, he has you and I in mind. See, as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. You woke up this morning with a purpose. It doesn't matter what happened last week. You woke up this morning with a God who loves you endlessly, and it's not based on your performance. It doesn't matter what you've been struggling with. You woke up this morning with a God who says, you are my child. And with every breath you take today, you can know that God has not forgotten you. And Paul points to that truth. He points points to our identity in Christ and says, don't forget who you are. And don't forget that your identity should now begin to determine your activity. As you and I begin to understand who we are in Christ, as we begin to adopt that identity as sons and daughters of God, it should change the way that we live, right? As we begin to see everything in the world through the lens of who we are in Christ and what he's calling us to do. So Paul zooms out and he shows them the bigger picture. Don't forget who you are in Christ. And now he's going to zoom back in to talk about their specific issue. That's what we're going to see in verse four. Here's what he says. So based on who you are in Christ, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So now the irony of what the Corinthians are doing begins to come more clear for them. I kind of tipped you off to it earlier, but this will be the first part where Paul is starting to rip the band-aid off, if, you, if that example makes sense. He's starting to really tell them, like, what are you doing? Right? He points out to them, based on who you are in Christ, why, did, why in the world would you take issues between other believers, take issues that you have between how believers relate to one another, and set them up for the non-Christian judge and jury to decide. It doesn't make sense. Now, I'll be honest. <laughs> I realize that 
50, 60, 70, 80% of the people who are sitting in this room today will probably never take someone, especially another Christian, to civil court. And so we sit in here today and we read this and we kind of go, what am I supposed to do with that information, right? Like I get, like I'll save that down the road for five years from now, but how does this, how does this help me now? And that's kind of the same thought I was wrestling with as I was preparing for this passage over the last couple of weeks is going, man, God, how does this, does this affect us on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning or the next day or the next day? What's the, what's the deal here? And the Holy Spirit began to convict me personally with this thought. And I just want to share this with you. I'll be vulnerable and share this with you. Andrew, that's me. Andrew, sure. You're not trying people in civil court cases all the time, but you do try people in the court of public opinion all the time. I was like, <laughs> okay, God, okay, that's why I was, okay, I'll take that one. See, we do this same thing that the Corinthians were doing every time we take our issues with other Christians and we air them out in front of our non-Christian coworkers and our non-Christian family members and our non-Christian friends and followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We do this same thing the Corinthians are doing every time when rather than dealing with our issues, we pick up and we move to the church down the road to handle those issues down there. And every time I do this, I'm no better than the Corinthian person who's standing in the middle of that town square giving everyone around me the reason they were looking for to write off Christianity because my activity doesn't line up with my identity. Paul is just going to continue to to drive this point home in the next two verses. Here's what he says in five and six. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? If you've ever been in trouble with your parents or your grandparents before, I know you have, you're human, uh, this is the part of the conversation that hurts. My oldest son is seven, and ever since he can understand words, they've always meant a lot to him. He's a words of affirmation person, if you've ever heard that before. Words mean a ton to my son. And so to go to my son and say something like, buddy, I am so disappointed in the way that you treated your brother tonight. It is so crushing to my child. And as his parents, like, we don't want to... I don't want to say, I don't like the look that I get after I say a statement like that. I don't want to make him feel that way. I don't like the power that those words have. Like, I don't, I don't want to put him in that position. And I think it's probably fair to say that Paul has some of that too. But here's the truth. It hurts, but it's also the important part of the conversation. The part of the conversation where we're shown the reality of our sin. Where we're shown the reality of our mistakes. Paul looks at his Corinthian audience and he goes, you have messed up. In fact, he says, I say this to your shame as if to say, if you're feeling bad right now, that's the right feeling. And maybe it seems harsh, but we have to remember who he's talking to, right? Who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to the Corinthians, the people who believe that they had become the wisest of them all. In fact, 
they got so confident in their wisdom that they believed that being so wise gave them to do the freedom, they gave them the freedom to do anything they wanted to do. Because why? Well, we're the wisest, which means if we think it's okay, that means it's okay. That's their logic. And Paul is going, your pride in your wisdom is what has led you toward failure in this moment. In fact, Paul digs a little deeper. I love, I love, he, he is so on the point. Here's, what he, here's how he challenges him. He says, was there not one person in your church that was wise enough to know that this was a bad idea? Was there not one person in your church of wise people that could stand up and say, what are we doing? What in the world is happening? He's going to wrap this up for us in these last two verses. And I am so excited to read these two verses to you. I know that maybe on the surface, it doesn't look like, like there's a bunch there, but there's so much in these last two verses. And I just want to share these with you. Here's what he says. Watch this. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here, Paul gives us an incredible picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's think this through. Why do we try people in civil court cases? Well, to get what we're owed, <laughs> to get what we deserve, to get our rights. Why do we try people then in the court of public opinion? This one may be more complicated, but I think it's to I think it's to feel accepted in our opinions, right? To know that someone is on our side, to feel justified, to get our rights. But here's the gospel truth, the kingdom mindset. See, Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get our wrongs, right? Jesus steps out of heaven he leaves perfection. He comes to earth fully sacrificing so that you and I could have a relationship with him. It had nothing to do with getting what he deserved. That's the mindset that we should have as Christians. It's not about what I deserve. That's the example that Jesus left us. It's about us being the clearest picture that we can be of the love that God has for his people. Another way maybe that we, could, that we could say this this morning is this. As a Christian, my rights aren't my mission. See, a church, a faith community, look around, that's us. A church that is full of unhealthy, unresolved conflict and division loses all of its power to change the world around it because of the hypocrisy, because of the ocean-sized gap between what we say that we believe and who we actually are. Now, will Christians always fight? Of course, <laughs> because we're human. But as Christians, we must recognize that the way that we handle our conflict, the way that we handle our disagreements with other believers is nothing more than another opportunity for us to be an example of Jesus. The way that we deal with our problems with each other is just another opportunity to show the love of Jesus to the world around us to say, look what my God can do. It's not about me. It's about the kingdom. It's not about, it's about the mission. Now, I realized this morning that I spent a bunch of time talking about 
how we shouldn't handle conflict. And that's because that's what the core of this passage is. But I just want to leave you with the four ways that we see in other parts of scripture that we should handle conflict. And I'll just, we'll throw them all on the screen for you if you need to take a picture to remember them for later. Uh, and you can, you can go see these in other verses. But I just want to share these with you really quickly. Here's the four steps that the Bible would suggest as to how we handle conflict with the other believers. The first step is we go to God. Now we do this for everything as Christians, right? We should do this whether it's trying to find out an answer to one of life's most difficult questions or we do this when we're trying to figure out a dispute with another believer. We open up the Bible, God's word, and we say, man, what is the right resolution to this issue in God's eyes? That should always be the first step for anything as a believer. Or maybe it's even this, we go to the Lord in prayer. We say, God, would you just show me, reveal to me my own heart. Show me where I'm getting this wrong. Show me how to handle this situation. As a church, we believe that prayer changes things. We're not just saying to go to the Bible because that's what you do. We're not just saying to pray because that's what you do. We believe that those are the most important steps for any believer. In fact, that's why this Wednesday night, we're gathering people from all five of our LifePoint campuses and we're bringing them into this room at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night for our first LifePoint all-campus prayer gathering. Why? Because we believe that prayer changes things. And maybe that's a great night for you to come and just spend some time in prayer and say, God, how do you help me? Can you help me figure out this situation or to join us as we pray for our community and our nation as we pray that God would continue to give us the opportunity to be a witness to the people around us, that God would continue to change the lives and hearts of people right here in Delaware. Maybe that's for you on Wednesday night, right? We go to God first. The second, after we go to God, we go to the person. Now, The goal here in this conversation when you go to the person should not be to air one another out. (laughs) It's to approach one another in respect and humility, right? If If you're the person approaching someone about an issue, the two words you need to remember are respect and humility. Humble enough to say, I don't know your true intentions. I don't know what you meant by this. Maybe you see this differently and we approach them that way. Here's what I've done. And if you're on the person that's on the receiving end of one of these conversations, there are two things that you need to know. I'm going to guess you could figure them out. The first one is respect and the second one is humility. Just think about this for a moment. Here's why I love the scripture so much. Imagine this picture that you've done something that maybe has offended someone or, or you've handled something and you didn't even realize what you've done. And someone would come to you and say, hey, just so you know, There's this situation that happened, but here's what I've done. I went to God first. I love you so much that I spent time in the Bible to try to figure out how to handle this with you. I love you so much that I spent time in prayer with the Lord trying to figure this out with you. And now I haven't aired it out to everyone else. I'm coming to you to say, hey, here's my heart on this. That's the the kindest action that someone could show you is not to air you out, to just walk up to you and say, man, in humility, like, hey, what's your thoughts on this? So whether you're on the receiving end of the conversation or you're the one initiating, it's respect and humility. Then if that doesn't work, the the third step we would go to is we'd bring the two of you together in front of what the scripture calls wise Christian counsel. As a church, we see this playing out in two different ways. One of them is maybe with your connection group. Like maybe your life group leader could be an objective third party that brings the two of you together and you can sit down and you could talk about this. Like someone who is maybe further down the road as a believer who could be a real objective third party, not like a I'll be objective, but I'm your best friend. Like, not that. That was my teenager voice, by the way. I forgot I'm talking to adults. Uh, That was my middle school, sixth grade boy voice right there. So I don't know why I did that. Um, 
Go to wise counsel. And maybe you're in the room this morning and you're not in a life group. It's a great opportunity. When you came in today, they should have been handing out. We got life group catalogs. If you didn't go on, stop by Guest Center on the way out. You're not missing anything. Life groups haven't started yet. They start, well, they start for 1825 groups this week, but for everybody else, they start on September 11th. So you've got time. Get in a group. Why? Because you're missing out on the 100 benefits, including this. Who do you go to in these difficult moments, wise Christian counsel? Or maybe a step there for you is to to email the church and schedule time to sit down with one of our pastors here and the two of you together and figure out how do we glorify God in this situation? What does it look like to honor God here? And then fourth and finally, maybe the best thing that we could do is end the way that Paul did. And we, maybe the best decision that we could make is to join Jesus in suffering, right? Jesus suffered so that you and I could have a relationship with him and we walk in his footsteps every time we suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Maybe that's the best thing that we could do. Now the disclaimer here is I would say to you this, we're not suggesting, please do not hear today, that we're saying that you should say, why not rather be wronged with criminal cases like murder, right? Or any of the, like, that's not what we're, this is talking specifically about civil issues between believers, right? That's where our heart is. Why not, you know what? For the sake of the kingdom, I'm just gonna let it go. Now, why do we do this? Why do we do any of this? Because as Christians, our activity should determine, or excuse me, our identity should determine our activity, right? And one of the core elements of our identity as believers is this. My rights aren't my mission. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you give us examples of imperfect churches and imperfect people in your word. Holy Spirit, would you begin to reveal to us the areas in our lives where we've done this wrong? That God, you would reveal to us the areas in our lives where our activity does not line up with the person that you've called us to be. That's our prayer this week. God, we are so humbled. And Lord, I pray that this week, as maybe someone needs to initiate a difficult conversation, that you would give them, that you would fill them with respect and humility, that you would give them clarity and wisdom at every turn. And if someone is on the receiving end of one of these conversations this week, we pray that you would give them respect and humility and patience. Lord, I pray that as we are faithful to follow you, that we're faithful to go through the difficult work of figuring out how to honor you in every situation, that we would not grow weary of doing good, that we would lean into you with all that we have, even in the most difficult moments, because God, you are good. Lord, we, we love you so much. I love you so much. Amen.